Uh, our text today is, um, comes from the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. Uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today, largely. Um, so if you'd like to go there, that's mostly where we're going to be. Uh, let, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Sabbath. We thank you for drawing us out of the world in your Son, Jesus, and bringing us here to worship him, to glorify you by the Spirit. We pray, Father, that you open your word to us today. We pray, Father, that you expose us, that you comfort us, that you heal us, that you bring us low, those who need to be brought low, and you lift up those who need to be lifted up. Father, we're in such various and sundry states, it's difficult to know what to say, how to say it. And I pray, Father, that by your spirit you enter these words today, and that you meet each person here exactly where they are. And I pray, Father, that for your glory and their good, that you show up here today in your word and comfort your people, Israel. And amen. All right, so John chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. This is what it has to say. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, have you ever been surprised by how badly you can fail the Lord? Have you ever shocked yourself, surprised yourself, right? You think you're going to go and be the, the evangelist extraordinaire, and instead of bringing the light, you bring shadow, <laughs> right? You think you're going to you know, love your wife. I, I remember there was one time we sat at an anniversary dinner arguing. That was, that was really amazing, <laughs> right? There's some person at work, and, and uh, they say something about Christianity, and you sort of chuckle, opposed to arguing with them, right? It's amazing how much we can fail the Lord. I'm sure all of you have experienced times where you thought you were going to go big, strap on the sword and start chopping ears off like Peter, and, and fail the Lord, and failed him. Now, the remarkable thing about this, the part that's hard to understand, is that you have never surprised Jesus in how badly you failed. He's never in heaven going, well, that was unexpected. I thought they were far stronger than that. What happened? He knows what you are capable of, for ill or for good. That's why he, he came into the world, because he knows exactly what you're capable of, for ill or for good. Now, we all have a misplaced confidence in our moral faithfulness, in our strength, our integrity, our spiritual well-being. We don't understand ourselves. And because we don't understand ourselves, we don't understand the Lord. Now, not to any controversy. You can say that equally just the other way around. We don't understand him, and so we don't understand ourselves. We don't understand ourselves, so we don't understand him, and it's this terrible cycle that we, that we live in. But the good news is Jesus knows us perfectly, weaknesses and all. And he is, in fact, working through our failures, even our failures, to draw us deeper into a dependent and loving fellowship with him. Okay? A perfect example of the blessing that Jesus can bring even out of our moral failures is demonstrated in the text before us today. Now, I can't get off of this whole Peter thing. It's remarkable. And, and, and I, I purposely had us read the end of the story earlier today so that we know where we're going with this. 
Because here Jesus or uh, Peter is bold. He thinks highly of himself. He, go, he thinks he's going to go big for Jesus, and he doesn't. And the thing is, Jesus isn't shocked by it. He knows. And Jesus doesn't leave him there. He lifts him up. And, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, is this story with Peter, where he is so confident in himself and doesn't, uh, doesn't know how big he can fail, and how Jesus it uses it to draw Peter further into a, a deeper love for him. Okay, so this section that we're in, just to give you some context, is called the Upper Room Discourse. Okay, and this is uh, John from 13, is sort of the introduction. It goes 14, 15, 16. Jesus prays this, what is called his high priestly prayer in 17, and then, and then we move on to the passion. Now, this is what's fascinating to me, is Jesus is very troubled. He's extremely troubled. The, the disciples are extremely troubled. And he spends what is three chapters in John talking about the Trinity, which is fascinating. Because when it comes down to it, what they all need, he and his disciples, is the Lord God himself. They need to understand who God is, who Jesus is, who the Spirit is, who the Father is, what the point of all of this is, where they are, where they are all going. Okay, I find that fascinating. That that's what he's talking about here at the end. The last meal he's going to have with them, and he gives them a large and lengthy discourse on the Trinity. They don't understand most of what he says. He's giving it to them like so many other things, and then they won't understand it until later when the Spirit comes. But he's making a deposit now. He's giving them over. He's giving them knowledge. He's giving them things that later they will come to understand and will, in fact, not only transform them, transform the world. So that's where we're at here. In the immediate context, we have three episodes we're all very familiar with. Jesus is going to tell them about God, but he's always about showing them God first. And so he gets on his knees and he washes their feet. And then what happens is he has an exchange with Judas Iscariot, uh, who, who then leaves. And that's when Jesus starts talking to them about the Trinity. It's interesting that he doesn't wait. That's a whole other sermon. He waits until Judas leaves. And once that guy is gone, then he gets down to telling them, things he had never told them before, fascinating things, deep, wonderful, comforting, loving things about the Lord God. And so, so that's the context that we're in here. So this, this part with Peter right at the beginning is actually followed by Jesus talking about the, the, the triune God afterwards. And so how is everyone doing? How are, how are, how are, what's the ethos in the room? How's everyone doing sitting around the table? Well, it says in verses, verse 13, 21, chapter 13, verse 21, that Jesus is troubled in his spirit. And Jesus goes on to tell his disciples in 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. So clearly people are upset. They're not themselves. Jesus is leaving, he says, and none of them understand what he means by this. And on top of that, on top of the fact that he declares he's leaving and doesn't explain where he's going or what he's doing, he tells in front of everyone that Peter is going to fall away. Now, that is a prof- has a profound effect on all of them. Peter is the rock, as we well know, right? Peter's the guy who walked on water for a time. Peter is the one who's the loudest, the most boisterous. He's the first one to call him the son of God. He is strong. And if Peter falls, who can stand? And so by having someone in a leadership position, having somebody who's out front fall is helpful to everybody. Because so often we put our confidence in the wrong people. Um, I, I, I had this experience. I remember this, too. I, I mean, I thought pastors, elders, deacons were superhuman people. And the first time one of them did something that was weird, sinful, and right in front of me, it, that was a really weird experience. It's like, wow, that guy just used a swear word right in front of all these people. That's, wow. 
And so that's what's fascinating here. Jesus is not just working on Peter. He's working on everybody, okay? It's, I mean, think about it. It's Peter. And Jesus says right there, he doesn't, he doesn't whisper to him. He doesn't take him aside. He says right in front of everybody, you're going to fail big. That's very surprising to me. And I think it's very helpful for all of us to understand how these things work. Peter has big plans for Jesus. He has a lot of zeal for Jesus. He has a lot of love for Jesus. He has a lot of hope for what Jesus is going to do, not only for Peter, right? He's riding this rocket all the way to the top, but also for the people of Israel. But Jesus also has big plans. And he's willing to patiently wait, patiently lead, letting Peter spend his misplaced zeal letting, and his overconfidence until he's ready to cheerfully submit to those plans that Jesus has for him. Okay, Jesus is, he's got time. He's not hasty. He knows what Peter needs, and he's going to give it to Peter because he has big things for Peter to do. And he knows Peter's not going to be able to do them until he goes out into the desert for a little while, like all of us, like Jesus himself, like the people of Israel always have. And so because Peter doesn't understand Jesus, he doesn't understand himself. But Jesus understands Peter perfectly and is letting Peter into a deeper under, leading Peter into a deeper understanding and fellowship with himself through Peter's failures. God is efficient. He doesn't waste anything, not even your failures. He doesn't say, okay, that's a failure. You go deal with that and come back. He's working in our lives constantly, right, when we're doing well and when we're doing poorly. This is a great comfort to us. This is a great comfort to us. And so, like, let, let's dig into this now. Let's get into this. Let's first consider the fact that Peter does not understand Jesus. This is where we're going to start. I know in your bulletin there it says something different, but yesterday when I was writing this, I decided to switch it around. It made more sense. Okay? <laughs> so he doesn't understand Jesus. Now, he loves Jesus. I don't, there's no doubt about that. He says, I will die for you. And, and Jesus himself says in John fifteen thirteen, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Peter loves Jesus truly and deeply. This is not an unbeliever that we're talking about. This is not someone outside of the camp. This is a guy who's in the camp, who's in the inner circle, who leads the inner circle. And Peter Peter loves him, but he doesn't understand him. And, And Jesus wants him to understand him. And so that's why he leads him through this process. Now, there's three instances in Peter's interactions with Jesus and where we come to see without a doubt he does not get what Jesus is about he loves him he's ready to follow him but he doesn't understand where Jesus is leading them he doesn't understand what Jesus is doing and the three examples are as follows the first one is in Matthew chapter 16 verses 21 through 23 I'm not going to explain these too much I'm just going to read them for you because it gives us a crystal clear picture of where Peter is at Matthew 16 verses 21 through 23 From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. Good thing he said Lord, otherwise it might be disrespectful. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are setting your mind on the things of God and you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Another incident happens later after the section we're talking about today, and it's recorded in John 18, 7 through 11. So Peter asked, uh, 
so Jesus asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you have gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. I don't think he knows how to use a sword. That's, a, that's one of those details. Like, he's got it, he's dying to use it, and he's not really sure how it works. It's like the pointy end goes, anyway. <laughs> it's so funny to me. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter is ready to fight for his vision of the church, which would, in fact, work against God's vision for the church. If Peter had his way, he would prevent Jesus from doing the thing that not only Peter needs, the rest of us need and the world needs. And so his misplaced zeal is not working for him here. Peter, Peter is working against the Lord at several points and doesn't realize it. He wants Jesus to get on board with what Peter thinks needs to happen. Okay, that, these interactions with Jesus, he's more and more frustrated with Jesus, not himself. And, and, and Jesus needs him to see himself. He needs Peter to take a good, hard look at himself. He needs to t- have Peter take a good, hard look at him and figure out the nature of this relationship and where things are going. Now, Peter is here in this story about chopping off the ear. It goes here. Anyway, Peter is here more like the Pharisees, who Peter Lightheart said are resisting the Romans, but the way they resist shows that they are more Roman than they think. Romans think the world is ruled by the sword, and many Pharisees agree. They forget that it is not by power nor by might, but by the spirit that God rules this world. Okay? So Peter is a lot like the enemies of God, as is explained all the way through the, the Gospels. He is fighting with a sword. He's fighting like a Roman, not like a son of God. Peter wants Jesus to be Lord and King. He absolutely does. Of a kingdom along the very narrow confines of the nationalism of Second Temple Judaism. That's a big phrase right there. I'm not going to explain it too much, but it's essentially this. The temple's an idol, the law's an idol, and being Jewish is an idol. Okay? And, and, and the people of God, when Jesus comes, are obsessed with those three idols, serve those three idols, and want to establish those three idols as the triune God, right? the law, the temple, and their Jewishness. And Peter is not, he's a man of his time. He, he, the traditions of, the, of his people aren't, aren't escaping him. He's, he's a guy like they are. The Messiah is finally here to bring about all of their hopes and dreams to rule the Middle East. And Jesus is like, well, I was thinking about ruling the universe, but we'll start with the Middle East. You've got to have a beachhead somewhere, I suppose. Okay. Peter declares that Jesus is God, that he is the Messiah, the king, and he wants to fight for that kingdom. But it's the very nature of the kingdom that eludes Peter, the kind of fighting that so confounds him. What is this kingdom we're fighting for, and what does it mean to fight for it? He isn't listening to Jesus' commands about selflessness. This is very interesting. In, in chapter 13, just prior to verse 38, Jesus is giving them the new commandment, as you see there. From ver- verses 31 down to 35, he's giving them the new commandment. In the midst of it, he says offhandedly, I'm going away. And then he proceeds to tell them that you will love each other like I have loved you. And in verse 38, Peter didn't even hear the part about love. He's not listening. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean you're leaving? You're the, 
you're the guy on whose rocket I'm supposed to ride to the top. What do you mean you're leaving? He's confused by this. And it's fascinating to me that, like Peter, we don't listen to the commands of God. We're trying to figure out what's going on behind the closed doors of heaven because we want to know. And we want to make sure that it aligns up perfectly with what we're doing. Explain yourself, Jesus. No, not about the love part. Explain yourself. What do you mean you're leaving? That's not on the agenda. I've got an agenda here, and that's not on it. I would like you to explain yourself. Peter thinks he's doing the will of Jesus, defending Jesus, building Jesus' kingdom. But Jesus' path lies in another direction, and Peter will know nothing but distress and failure and delusion as long as he resists who Jesus really is and what Jesus is really doing. There's no hope for Peter until he figures this out, and he's, he's clearly not figuring it out in, in the average, everyday interactions here with Jesus. Peter has a misguided expectations of Jesus, and that is the reason for his misery. He has all these expectations for him, and none of them are the ones that Jesus is declaring for himself. Jesus is not taking the kingdom in the direction Peter thinks it ought to go. Jesus is not leading the way Peter thinks the Messiah ought to lead. And how much of our discontent, how much is of our lack of joy, our apathy, a result of our misguided expectations of Jesus? What do you mean I'm tired? What do you mean I'm poor, commercially? What do you mean I, I'm sick? I thought you were supposed to come and do away with all those things. What's going on, Jesus? Don't you love me? Aren't you good? What? How much of our difficulty as people, as Christian people, comes from the fact that we're expecting the wrong things from the wrong Jesus. Your business, your children, the church, the people you go to church with, politics, how tired you feel, how, how much money you don't make, your sickness, your lack of peace, your anger, the growing distance between you and your spouse, you and your children, you and the Father. Is the problem the false Jesus that you've built out of your own ideas of what should happen? Your own aspirations, your own selfish desires, your own misguided traditions and worldliness. Is that shaping who Jesus is or is Jesus shaping those things? Are you striving and working and and working and striving and working and striving for the wrong kingdom, for the wrong king? Is the problem your idol Jesus and not Jesus as he reveals himself, Jesus as he declares himself to be, the Jesus that is recorded of in the Bible, the Jesus who the Spirit proclaims to be in our heart of hearts, are we just as guilty of the first century Jews who mis- whose misguided expectations of Jesus led to a great deal of conflict, discontent, disobedience, apathy, and disbelief? Are you guilty of thinking that the intent of God's kingdom is the American dream? That Jesus' platform is the same as the Republican Party's platform? That if he were alive today, that Jesus wouldn't come after us as the religious hypocrites? As one commentator wrote, the problem of misguided expectations is common to all mankind. We regularly trust the wrong people or expect them to provide what they cannot or should not provide. Jesus says the wise man builds his house upon the rock. Not a rock, but the rock. 
that is Jesus the Christ. Still, even those who try to build on the rock can suffer disappointment if they remake Jesus in their own image. We must let him define himself to us. Like Peter, are you ignoring Jesus' commands? Are you ignoring the Jesus right there in the room with you and, and what he's teaching you while you pursue a life lived under a false Jesus you've recast as a modern, affluent American? Right? Have you remade Jesus in such a way as that he wants what you want? He's working for what you're working for. He's only interested in what you're interested in. He only loves the people you love. Is that the Jesus you're serving? It's not uncommon. It's, it's a problem that all, the, all Christians face in all ages. The false Jesus that you've recast to play a minor role in your aspirations, taste, personal hopes, and self-illusion. That, that's, when I do this, when I'm doing this, right? I, I, see, I see these stickers, God is my co-pilot. Yes, right? Quiet over there. I've got control of this thing. I know what's up. If something goes wrong, I will let you know. Don't you worry. I got this. And I am flying down the road, flying at 150 miles an hour, ready to go, just like Peter, totally ignoring the Jesus that's there, and just, I want you to be quiet until I need you to tell me something I maybe don't know, which is probably not going to happen. <laughs> and this is, this is how we live. Peter offers to die for Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, no, I will die for you, brother. They won't arrest you. They won't kill you. They won't send you to the fate that you and your father decided. No, that's not the plan. It's not the plan. Peter says, my life for yours. I'll sacrifice myself to fulfill my plans for you and your kingdom. It's so, it's, right? Jesus is there. His kingdom is there, but it's perverted what we say. It's perverted what we think. I'll save you, Jesus, and it sounds so holy and so righteous and so noble. But Peter can't die for Jesus until Jesus dies for Peter. That's the exchange. That's the gospel. He dies for us, and we can die for him. The way he wants, the way that blesses us the most, the way that glorifies his kingdom. But until that, when it's just us offering ourselves for a co-pilot, it's no good. Jesus comes and takes away your idols at whatever cost to you, at whatever cost to him. And so here's the question. Is he a disappointment to you? Is he failing you? Is he confusing you? Is co-pilot speaking up a little too loudly from the back seat? Are your prayers more like Peter taking Jesus aside to rebuke him? Are you avoiding talking to him at all? If you're if your relationship to him were a Facebook relationship, would it just be marked as complicated? And that's it. I go to church. I, read, I have a Bible. It's complicated, though, because he keeps doing things I'm not expecting, going directions I don't want to go, having me do things I don't want to do. Now, it's obvious that Peter does not understand Jesus. And so, therefore, logically, Peter doesn't understand himself. He doesn't know himself. Now, Peter makes a bold assertion. I think we all know what it is, but let's read it from verse 37. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I'll do it, Jesus. 
This reminds me of that story with David where they don't want to send David to the front lines because he's too important. So, I mean, you see what, what Peter is doing here is on one level there's a certain nobility to it, right? We don't usually send the president to the front. Well, especially this president. But you don't send the president to the front. In fact, you don't usually send the generals to the front. Uh, my dad tells stories about the most fascinating um, and, and captains in the Army are the ones that weren't in some office somewhere on the phone looking at things on computer screens, but were actually out there where the shooting was, right? That's, you don't send the leader out there where he could die because he's the leader. And, and, and that's what they did for David. And, and Peter thinks he's being a good general. This is like King David here, and so I'm going to do the same thing. I'll go and die because, he, again, he's got the whole thing on upside down and backwards. Peter is confident in himself. This is what we're going to talk about primarily. He has all the confidence in the world. He at sometimes seems even as confident or more confident than Jesus does, which is a very scary thing. Peter doesn't know how much failure he's capable of. He doesn't. He doesn't think he's capable of any, especially how much failure he's capable of. He asks, question, he, he asks this question of Jesus that is actually presumptuous on one level. Why can't I follow you? You can hear his frustration. I want to know. What is it that you think I lack? What is it that you think I'm not capable of? Because I'm ready to do it. You need me to do it. And so what's the problem? It's a hard question. And, and the thing we can all learn, actually a lesson from, it is a hard question. His motivation for wanting to know may be bad, but it's a good question on one level. What are you doing, right? This is this confrontation between the two of them and where one of them has to come out submissive. And as long as Peter isn't the one who's submissive, he's going to have problems. It's a hard question with a hard answer. And clearly, by, by asking this question, Peter doesn't know himself. He doesn't. He doesn't understand what, what could possibly be the problem with his plan of dying for Jesus. He's self-deluded is the problem. He thinks he's capable of far more than he's capable of. He thinks he's a mighty spiritual warrior, but his faithfulness is as thick as tissue paper, that kind you can see through, right? He thinks he can go miles for Jesus, and he can't make it five feet. Peter thinks because he does something that he can do it. Now, that's a complicated thing I just said. He thinks because he does it, he can do it. Here's what I mean by that. He thinks he's a great spiritual warrior because he can cast out demons. But who gave him the ability to cast out demons? We do this all the time. We think we're, we don't lie, and so we think we're honest. Like, it's just inherent in us. I'm an honest person, right? We don't understand our dependence, that we can only do all things through him who strengthens us. Now, think about that. We can do all things through him who strengthens us. And so if we don't have the one who strengthens us, what can we do? Not all things, but the opposite of all things, which is nothing. We can do nothing apart from the one who strengthens us. What this implies is that we exist every day, every moment, in a state of dependence, in a state of need. And that is not how we live, is it? No way. No way. None of us on any given day live in a state of need. We're made aware of that need from time to time. We don't exist in a state of need. If we did, then we would always be able to do the things through him who strengthens us. And we would never have any problems. 
We live, in a, we live, though, in a perpetual state of need that we're not aware of. We, wa- we think, I got this, and we go about our lives with only the strength and moral and physical that we possess in ourselves, and thus we are easily crushed. Okay? We think, because we were patient with our, wa- our spouse last night, that we're a patient person with our spouse. We think because we had a good day of homeschooling that we're good at homeschooling. We think we didn't lose our cool yesterday with that guy in the other car, so we think we're a cool-headed person. And we don't realize where it comes from, right? I was a good Christian yesterday, thus I will be one today. It's like the sun going up and down. But the thing is, were you? Really? And really, why, if you were? Where, where did that ability to be patient come from? Where did that, all that brilliance when you were teaching and homeschooling come from? Where did that kindness come from? Where did that willingness to pray come from? Where did that desire to read the Bible come from? Where do these things come from? See, Peter thinks it's Peter. We walk around thinking it's us, and it's not. And again, this is what Jesus is like, okay, Peter, I got you. You're a big man. Look at that sword you're wearing. I bet you don't even know that it goes in some, anyway. (laughs) He's not going to comment on any of that. You say, okay, cool. Uh, Jesus, I, or, uh, Peter, I just have one thing to say, though. You're going you're to deny me tonight. Before the sun comes up, you are going to say that you don't know me at all. And that's something we don't really want to hear, is it? And so we don't ask these hard questions. We avoid it. And how does it go for Peter? <laughs> I mean, we all know, I mean, we know the story so well. How does it go? Not only does he not do what he says he's going to do, he, do, he does far less than that. When it comes to all of the disciples, the two biggest failures are Judas Iscariot and Peter. And Peter, think about that. There's Judas, the backstabber, and then the second worst failure on the list is Peter. All the other disciples simply run away out of fear. Nobody actually stands around three times saying they never knew the guy. <laughs> That's, uh, who? Jesus, what? I, I don't know. That, oh, that guy in there? I have no idea what's going on in there. I'm just here for the fire. Keep my hands warm. It's shocking how badly he fails. I mean, even for us who know the story, when you think about it, that is, that, I mean, that's a textbook case of failure right there. Not only does he go, not go as high as he thinks he's going to, he goes far lower than he thinks he's capable of. Now, how often do we set out to do grand and awesome things for Jesus and our strength, our wisdom, our fortitude, only to fall on our faces like total fools. How often does that happen to us? Even in good hearts, there's often more presumption than strength. See, Peter doesn't get that it's, I believe, help my disbelief. He just thinks it's, I believe. And he's willing to stand in that. He's willing to stand there like that. I believe. And not willing to admit any other weakness or even see any other weakness. We must see ourselves clearly and completely before we will have eyes to behold Christ in all his glory and all of his grace. John Calvin puts this so beautifully and pastorally in his institutes. Uh, This is it here in a nutshell. Thus, from the feeling of our own ignorance, vanity, poverty, infirmity, and what is more, depravity and corruption, we recognize that the true light of wisdom, sound virtue, full abundance of every good, and purity of righteousness rest in the Lord alone. 
To this extent, we are prompted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God. And we cannot seriously aspire to him before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. For what man in all the world would not gladly remain as he is so long as he does not know himself, that is, while content with his own gifts, and either ignorant or unmindful of his actual misery? Accordingly, the knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but also, as it were, leads us by the hand to find him. That's the blessings of our failure. It, it gives us true sight. I am worse than I think. He is greater than I think. And, and that's, what, that's the gift that the Lord gives us. That's what he does. We're all terrified of failing him. We're terrified of it. He is going to come down here, and he is going to crush me like an ant. And actually, he sits in heaven and he says, you, you think highly of yourself, and I love you too much to let you do that. And then he's, he's there. He's ready and he's waiting when we're, we're falling onto our face to lift us up. That's the whole point. He doesn't prevent this from happening to Peter, and he doesn't, he's not standing here judgmentally rebuking him for it. He says, Peter, let me just be honest with you. You're going you're gonna to fail. And then he's there afterwards to pick him up. Peter needs to have an internal confrontation with himself. That's what he needs. Now, the question for all of you guys is, how strong are you? Morally and physically. How strong are you? Now, if, if you answer with anything other than self-loathing, I, you, you failed the question. If you didn't say in your mind just now, and when you ask that question every day, if the answer isn't, I have none, then he has more work to do, to do on you. You need to go to him with that because that's, you have no moral strength. You have no physical strength apart from him. Okay, to wrap this all up, okay, because this is heavy. It doesn't get any heavier than this. This is like walking in here with a bazooka and just blasting you guys. And, and that's not the point. That's not the point of the story, actually. That's the first half. The second half is, that Jesus understands Peter, and he's leading him through all of this into a deeper love and fellowship with himself. That's the point of the story. Not Peter's failure. It's never about the failure. It's about Jesus' success. It's about his victory. It's about him never giving up on us, him putting up with this kind of crap and nonsense that I'm talking about. That's the point of the story. He's there. He's cheerful. He's ready to go. He's ready to have some fish and some bread, eat some breakfast. He's ready to bless their work on the boat. He's waiting for them on shore. He's there to meet them and greet them and enjoy their company. In verse 36, Jesus knows how badly Peter is going to fail. Let's read this for a second. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And so later, the promise is there. He remembers the promise. He said, wait, wait, wait. Wait, Jesus said, I won't follow him now, but afterwards. So I, I get to follow him. I get to go to heaven. I get to live a life in the light of the love of the Father like he did. I actually get to go on that journey. It's not the end, my failure. And so Jesus here gives him the promise, even while he's instructing him, even while he's revealing to Peter Peter's true nature, Peter's heart, Jesus is there giving him a promise in the midst of it. 
Okay? And when you're reading scripture to see what you're when you're reading the law and it convicts you of your sin, there in the book is the promise that that's not the end of the story. That's simply the beginning. It's where Jesus picks up the story and carries it forward. And so here, this is, this is what I want to talk about is at the end here, the final blow, because this is the blessing. This is the grace. This is the goodness. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22, verses 60 through 62. The details of this are so utterly profound, I can't even, it's hard to even fathom. After everything we've heard, Luke 22, verses 60 through 62. Let me get there myself. Luke 22, 60 through 62. But Peter said, this is the third time here. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately... While he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, today you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. (laughs) Right there in in the midst of it. Now, I don't know how many times that's happened to you. When you're right there at the... The sin has occurred, and, and there's the Lord. And you feel his presence, and you know he's there, and you know how utterly you failed. I mean, he looks up the third time, and he's making eye contact with the man he said he was going to die for. The irony is just, the grace is unbelievable. This is, is our Lord. This is him. He's not abandoned Peter, even as Peter is abandoning him, because he's looking at him, and he's saying, remember what you did. And in doing so, remember the promise. And this is, this is what we all need, this confrontation with ourselves, because Peter goes outside and he weeps bitterly. And if when you don't consider yourself, if you don't consider your life and the direction that it's going and how you're doing and your relationship with the Lord, and it doesn't make you go outside and weep bitterly, there is a problem. There is. When you look at yourself, you ought to go out and weep bitterly. And when you see the Lord, you better hop out of the boat with joy and swim to him. That's... This is it. This is what we're really talking about. This kind of brokenness in ourselves and this kind of joy when we see the Lord. And it's what's offered to all of us. It's what he promised to Peter. It's what he's promised to everybody. Okay, we, we, we have this read for us today. He says to Peter three times, do you love me? Three times, which is exactly how many times Peter denied him because he's restoring him. He's bringing him back. He's un- his words and his requests are undoing what Peter did. Three times he denies Jesus. Three times he's asked by Jesus, do you love me? And the answer is yes. Now more than ever. Because you, you did die for me. It, it wasn't what I thought. You're not who I thought. I'm not who I thought. You are so much better. You are so much more capable. Please, Lord, He wants to be where the Lord is. He leaps out of the boat wearing a lot of clothes. And I I don't know if you've ever done it. It's hard to swim when you're fully dressed. He doesn't care. He doesn't have any dignity left. He just wants to be there where the Lord is. And this is my favorite. This is 
for all of us who have been in this faith for years, for decades, for a short period of time. The Lord says to Peter the same thing he said to him when he first met him. It never gets beyond this first encounter. Follow me. He leaves Peter here with this. Follow me. Okay. He's shown him. He's told him. You're going to be led around when you're old, and you're going to have someone leading you around. He's telling him what kind of death. You are going to have the kind of death I had. You are going to follow me. Now follow me. And this is the Christian life. The Lord knows us. He hasn't given up on us. Nothing you can do can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Not even you. And I find that very difficult to believe because I know me. But the hope isn't me. The power isn't me. The power's not you. The hope's not you. You're not doing anything for him that he needs. He loves you. He wants you. And he's willing to lead you through as much death and resurrection as he needs in order for you to leap out of the boat and swim to him and want nothing but to be where he is. The Lord is there, and he has a meal like what we have today. He's waiting for them. Now, all this week, you have denied him. All this week, you have boasted in what you would do for him, and not only did you not do it, you did worse than what you thought you were capable of. And just like that, he's waiting here on the shore with a meal to share with you because he loves you. He loves you. He loves his children. He provides for his children. Because on that day, that day that Peter boasted so much in what he would do, Jesus did go out and die for for Peter. And he died for you and he died for me. And now he's offering you a meal in fellowship with him. What you did wasn't so bad that he's not forgiving you. Your weakness does not make him tired. He is not overcome in your unfaithfulness. So come, people of God, eat. Look upon the Lord. Weep bitterly. And when you see him, don't let anything stand in your way to be with him. And amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the gospel of John that teaches us so much about you, so much about ourselves. And I pray, Father, that, that this week and in, for the remainder of our lives, Father, we, we know that we will fail you without a doubt. And give us that assurance, that spirit in our heart that confirms constantly what you said, is that you would never give up on us. Let us know the love of, of the Lord. Let us know your grace and your mercy and your peace. And we pray, Father, we thank you for this meal that you've come to, to enjoy with us. And we pray, Lord, that we go from here nourished and hopeful and strengthened to run the race faithfully, to be restored to the Father in heaven, which you alone have accomplished for us. And amen.